0: Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. I'm Professor Bill Ledger. I'm Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of New South Wales and Royal Hospital for Women and I'm very pleased to welcome to today's podcast Dr Kylie Cripps. Before we start I'm going to ask Kylie to give us an Acknowledgement of Country.
1: Thanks, Bill. I'll start, as is customary in my culture, as an Aboriginal, a Palawa woman, to acknowledge wherever we are, that we are on the traditional lands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I pay my respects to our Elders, both past and present, and I also acknowledge the many working tirelessly in our communities and with our communities at the present moment to keeping them safe. Thanks, Bill.
0: Thanks, Kylie. That was heartfelt. I appreciate that. So, as Kylie said, she is a Palawa woman. She's also a Scientia Fellow and Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of New South Wales. And Kylie's worked extensively with Indigenous communities over more than 20 years now, specifically in the areas of family violence, sexual assault and child abuse. She's led several major grants from ARC and AHURI in these areas and has contributed to the evidence base through empirical studies that have defined violence on Indigenous terms, identified the factors that contribute to violence, as well as examining Indigenous peoples' access and availability to services in the aftermath of violence. Her work has also been responsive to the identification of critical gaps in current responses, including trying to provide solutions to support policy and practice change. Kylie places a credible and high priority on knowledge exchange, ensuring that her research is communicated at state and federal level but also, more critically, that the research is available and accessible to the Indigenous community of which she's part. To that end, she routinely provides advice, support and training to Indigenous communities and professional groups in her areas of expertise. Now, Kylie, we have a series of topics to discuss this morning, and maybe we could just kick off with a general question, maybe you could explore with this, how COVID-19 has impacted life in Indigenous communities.
1: Thanks, Bill. I don't think any of us anticipated coming into 2020 that we would be faced with a major fire crisis across our country and then swiftly followed by a pandemic that has changed the way in which we all are living um, at the present time. It's been quite a year, um, mm. and, and certainly for Indigenous communities, it, it's something that we've had to grapple, as has everybody else. But it's, it's particularly important in thinking about how tight-knit our communities are, how reliant we are on our family and kinship groups, and how in these times of social isolation, that We actually don't get to socialise in those normal ways that we would normally do to build and sustain our wellbeing. And so it's also important in these times to also think about how social isolation can also increase our vulnerability, Mm. our vulnerability in the context of our social disadvantage. So thinking about a good example here is how people have gone crazy at the supermarkets, for example, and how many in our community rely on welfare assistance. So our paydays are fixed, and so if people have been to the the supermarket and bought out all of the toilet rolls, and our mob can't get to the to the supermarket until Friday, and there's no toilet rolls, what does our community do? How do they experience that circumstance? And it's also thinking too in this this time around the increased cost of groceries and the costs of living in this period, the pressures of taking care of children at home, households expanding. Our families have had, as our borders have closed and as communities, Indigenous communities, have been closed to protect them, Mm. we've had an influx of families into communities, of people coming home. And that, in all normal circumstances, would be a welcoming thing, Mm. But when you've got households that are now before the crisis might have been 10 people households to households that are now 20, Mm. 25, 30 people households in three bedroom homes, it increases the pressure um, Mm. and the strain on those households to manage both the day to day living, the schooling of children and caring for those who may become unwell. It also is problematic if someone gets COVID. How do you socially isolate someone in a household where you can't put one person in a room with so many in a house? Mm. These are other significant challenges that our community has been facing and considering in these times. And... Yeah, it's just elevated some of those social disadvantages that were very obvious pre-COVID, mm. but are elevated in, in this time.
0: Carly, that's interesting. Obviously, much of your research is focused on the, the impact of domestic violence on Indigenous women and children. And you allude to the pressures that people are under now because of the increased numbers of people in a family, that pressure of, of lack of space and lack of privacy is, is, is acute. How have these problems, clearly they must have worsened the kind of work, that the problems you're seeing, but how has that impacted?
1: Absolutely. So what we've heard from the service sectors, the the sectors that, that are servicing victims of violence, is that there has been an increase of domestic and family violence of people accessing services. The statistics have been varied, though. Um, Police in New South Wales, for example, were saying, you know, there hasn't been an increase compared to this time last year. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're missing in in that reporting of data is that the opportunity in these crowded environments to call police in these circumstances Mm -hmm. is going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. When you've got so many people and, you know, getting on the phone and saying, I need help, isn't going to be the easiest task to do. And so, police may not be the first point of call for victims in these situations. We've seen, as some of the service providers that have talked about, it is more online traffic, mm. where um people are me- instant messaging or SMSing to say that they need help in, in that way because it's, it's not going to be overheard. Um, mm. It's not going to be as challenging. Mm. We've also heard from medical practitioners and emergency departments across the nation that there has been an increase in the severity of injuries being reported to their casualty departments. That is a a very alarming situation to be in, that we've got domestic violence victims that are experiencing more Mm -hmm. severe injuries. Mm
0: -hmm. So just to explore that a bit more, in a way, Mm -hmm. if there are more people from extended family gathered together. It might make it more difficult for a man and a partner to have those moments when there's just the two of them and then argument might deteriorate into violence. Do you think possibly there's a having extended family around might might be diluting this at present? Or is that too easy
1: mm-hmm. an answer? I, I think it's a, a too easy. <laughs> um, I, I think that depending on, the, on what the social dynamic is in that household and the makeup of that household, mm. how many of the household are, are children, how many of the household are elders, mm. how many of the household are the perpetrator's yeah. family, yeah. as to the victim's family, it's those dynamics that will impact the extent to which mm. the violence how it's condoned, okay. right, yeah. um, and how it, it is or isn't supported. So mm-hmm. you would hope that if the household saw something that they'd intervene. Yeah. But if you're an elder and, oh. and you're seeing someone hit someone oh. and you've got nowhere to go yeah. and you know that if you speak, you're likely to cop it, yeah. it it's not a, an environment that, sure. that's particularly safe.
0: No, I understand. So one of the major occurrences in recent weeks has been the global attention to the Black Lives Matter movement, and there was a lot of synergy with that here in Australia. I wonder, could you explore whether there's been a practical benefit in terms of this movement impacting on the lives of Indigenous women, giving them more choices, giving them more access to help, perhaps, in situations of domestic and family violence? There's obviously a lot of support, but has it translated into practice?
1: Absolutely. So it's a really important time to to be thinking about Black Lives Matter. We've seen protests across our nation and they're a a remarkable protest in in the sense that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people feel the need to go out and actually demonstrate about these issues of social inequalities, Mm. the way that people are treated by the justice system and by justice personnel. It is an alarming time, especially for Indigenous women, but also for the Indigenous community more broadly, mm. uh, because particularly over the last couple of weeks, nearly every day we were seeing on social media a video of a young child, um, yeah. you know, a 16-year-old or a, a, an 11-year-old or a man or, or a woman being assaulted by police. Yeah. That doesn't engender confidence in mm. the police. It creates fear. It reinforces an historical fear of police because if we think back to the relationship with police for Australia's Indigenous people, police have been notorious in the context of removing children, imprisoning people, moving populations so that families are separated. They've been involved in a lot of things in our history that have meant that people have feared them. And then when we see videos such as we have, when we hear about deaths in custody and the numbers of deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, it reinforces those fears. Mm. And certainly even prior to COVID, Indigenous women would routinely say that they would be thinking about, as they were making their decisions about whether to report violence or not, they would be thinking about not necessarily the risk to themselves, but the risks to their family members. Yeah. They would be thinking, if I ring the police, what's the consequences going to be for my partner? Yeah. What's the consequences going to be for my children? Because inevitably, child protection would get involved. Yeah. Then they'd be thinking about their other household members. What's the consequence mm. going to be for them mm. and family members broader than the household? So. In this context, when we look at Black Lives Matter and the elevation of these social media platforms and these videos, it increases the propensity for victims not to report. Mm. And that is potentially incredibly damaging for our community members, particularly for women.
0: So, Kai, there's been enormous sincerity amongst the people demonstrating, as you say, to have the courage to go out and with a lot of other people in the middle of the pandemic shows the commitment that the demonstrators had and I think they were voicing a sentiment that many people who don't naturally demonstrate also felt as you say has raised the tension, the the suspicion of policing amongst the community. Do you think though that the system will listen and will try and change itself to become more accommodating, more sympathetic of the needs of your Indigenous community rather than this sort of polarisation that's caused such a problem up until now? Do you think this will work?
1: I'd hope so. I think that there's a lot that needs to be done. There needs to be a a thorough examination of how the institutions don't engender a sense of safety and how we can improve those relationships Mm. in such a way that people can turn to them in in times of of, of need. Mm. But I think, too, that we... In those moments where we don't have faith in those systems, mm. we also need to be conscious that we need to have a system of safety outside of that, right? So we need to, to have in our community a, a system of accountability. Yeah. We need to be able to have community members who, when they see violence, that they can say, hey, brother, that's not acceptable. Mm. That's not okay. Violence in our community is not acceptable. Mm. Um, we don't do that. We need to have our women and our aunties and our grandmas saying, sister, we know something's going on and you know you don't have to put up with that. We need to to engender those conversations so that we create a community where violence is no longer acceptable. And in addition to that, we also need those service systems those structures at those institutions the police to work with us in a way that creates safety mm-hmm. so I, I think back to to some of the work that I've done with some of our communities down in Victoria for example and they have done some commercials that air on prime time. So you'll be sitting down to, to dinner and family violence commercials have aired on TV and they'll have our wonderful elders and not only our elders, but our community members featuring in those commercials saying violence isn't acceptable. And one of those commercials I'm reminded of is of a, an Aboriginal woman who's a police officer. Mm. And she's talking about, you know, this is what my job is. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to care for you. I'm here to support you when you're in a time of need. Mm. And it's those kinds of, of messages we need to get out. Right. So that not all police are bad police, but at the same time, we need to get those positive messages out of those members in the police force that are actually doing a good job with our community members so that we get a better system of accountability
0: which I guess brings us on to the the question of having explored the complexity of these issues, are there better ways you can find to support Indigenous victims of violence, domestic family violence? You know, where can we go? Many people are very supportive of the initiatives you're describing, really see this as a problem that is acute, is desperate, but maybe there are ways to help. What, What can
1: be done? Absolutely. I think that there are a number of things that can be done. Uh, And I think that too often what we hear in the community is that the answer to these problems lies in our community. And people might think that that's a crass response, but it actually is true. When you sit with these communities, when you hear the stories being shared, when you observe an auntie relating to other community members that are going through these problems, When you observe and engage with the informal helping systems within our families and within our communities, that's what's working. Mm. That's what's working. But we don't see that. We don't hear that. Often, too, in the Indigenous community, uh, in response to family violence and domestic violence, we have a lot of pilot programs that happen they get funded for, for six months or 12 months or two years if they're lucky, they might have a good evaluation, but they don't get refunded. Mm. And I would argue that if we treated domestic and family violence as if it was a cancer, yeah. if we had and invested in it as if it was a cancer with you know, the prevention mechanisms, the acute responses, mm. if we had that kind of investment in, in this, we would have different outcomes. Mm. Whilst ever we continue to have a a focus that says we can eradicate this or we can stop this or that the best way of responding is through a justice mechanism, Mm.
0: Mm.
1: I think we miss the point. Domestic and family violence is complex. It's about relationships. Mm. It's about people's individuality. It's about the status that they hold in their community, in their families. It's about whether they're affected by drugs and alcohol. It's Mm. about whether they're affected by mental health conditions. It's about whether they've lost their job today. It's about whether Mm. they've suddenly got COVID. All of these things impact how we experience domestic and family violence and our relationships Mm. and the stresses of our relationships. Mm. So if we have a system that responds to that complexity, Mm. that nuance, Mm. and, and I've got to say that In many ways, our informal helping systems, our mums, our aunties, our uncles, our brothers, they are doing exactly that. And if we have that, then that is what works, Mm. if that makes sense.
0: It certainly does. And Kylie, can I just put one final question to you, which is what's being done to educate the young people, the next generation, the, the boys and girls who will grow up to be the men and women who are adults in the community... Surely one of the ways to improve things is to, of course, work in the now, but also look to the future. So maybe give us a rundown on what's been done in that space.
1: That's a good question. I think that, again, it comes back to those personal relationships. A couple of years ago, I was a foster carer Mm -hmm. and nothing comes truer to home than having a young child to look after who has only ever witnessed violence in their lives. So, every emotional response, whether they're happy, whether they're sad, whether they're angry, whether they're frustrated, Mm. is going to be a hit or a kick. Mm. The response to that then has to be diverting that attention, saying, Am I happy? This is what we do. Mm. And it's that individual relationship, right? Working with a child where they're at and engaging with them around hands aren't for hitting, Mm. they're for hugs. Yeah. They're for. Engaging in a different kind of way, mm. it's redefining how we engage with our young ones about relationships, about institutions. Mm. I can remember working with one of our little ones, and there was a particular day at kindergarten where the police were going to come and visit. They had the the fireies come and visit, they yeah. had the ambulances, yeah. and they were going to have the police, and she was scared stiff yeah. because. She said, are they going to come and pull a gun on us like they did grandma? Mm. And we had to work out how are we going to respond to that. Mm. And our response was to go down to the local police station and say, well, we've got a situation. Mm. Have you got an officer who has the time and the commitment to work with us, mm. with this little one, so that she can understand the police can be safe? Yeah. And all credit to them. They gave us a police officer who did exactly that. And I can remember when when the police officer came down and and the first thing out of this little one's mouth was, where's your gun? And the the police officer said, well, I was told I was coming to visit a very safe little girl. Are you a safe little girl for me to visit? And she said, yes. Well, I don't need my gun. (laughs) And so then there was a whole conversation around safety and she got to see what was in a police car and, you know. And they had a a relationship for the next year where she got to go to events with this police officer and that kind of thing. So it's working with where the kids are at, Mm. responding to them on that individual level. But it's also engaging with them in the school system. What are we doing in response in the school system around relationships? Mm. A one-size-fits-all model of teaching is not going to work with many of our Indigenous children if they've been exposed to violence. So we need to find a way that engages with them, that understands that relationships come in all different forms and we need to engage with that. Kids are our future. We have to redefine to them what is safe relationships and and what that looks like.
0: Dr. Carly Cripps, thank you very much for finishing on A Message of Hope. I think that was a splendid story. And for taking time to uh, do the podcast with us today. Um,
1: Thank you very much, Carly. Thanks, Bill. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion website.